0: Hello and welcome to the occasional meat cleaver. I'm Charisse. I have a guest here. Do you want to uh, say who you are and kind of your bio?
1: I'm Bill Marshall. Uh, I'm a retired police officer. Uh, I was in law enforcement for over 36 years. Um, I was a master defensive tactics instructor at the Spokane Police Academy for nine of those years. And I studied independently of that uh, judo, karate, taekwondo, and a mixed martial art, one of the earliest mixed martial arts called Bushido Khan. I've had one full contact fight, and I also boxed in junior high and in college for three years. Uh, that's kind of my martial arts background.
0: Um, I might speak to the questions about keys between the fingers, because I've tried that on a dummy, and uh, you hadn't as much. But uh, other than that, it's going to be you answering questions that people gave me for you. Uh, Number one was, which situations are most common? The example they gave is, like, is it a dark parking lot, which people always kind of think of, or is it something else that you might not expect?
1: Um, usually if there's a physical encounter, um, it, it occurs when there's either a mental situation or a alcohol-fueled situation that a person encounters having nothing to do with that situation. Um, they are simply in the wrong place at the wrong time and either a, an acquaintance or a family member, because that's who we're with most of the time, will lose their temper because they're uh, on alcohol or because they've been in some other situation and they'll just take it out on someone. Um, sometimes, um, if you're uh, the, the victim of a crime, uh, as in like a, a robbery or that type of situation, Um, That can occur in the darkened uh, situation where you run into criminals that are looking to uh, victimize someone and you're just unlucky enough to run into them at that point in time. But most of the time when we're in a violent encounter, it's with someone that we know or at least acquainted with and there's alcohol or another anger situation that comes involved or they have a mental state that is prone to violence.
0: What is the best non-firearm self-defense product?
1: Uh, the one that that yields pers- uh, a person the, the most incapacitated the fastest, and I'm assuming that's what you're talking about. I would think so. Um, is probably a stun gun. Um, but that requires you to make physical contact unless it's one with probes, which I don't believe civilians can buy. Um, It requires a contact stun that makes contact with the other person's body or clothing so that it can transmit. Um, They are mildly effective uh, if a person is extremely focused or if the charge isn't sufficient or if the person has too much clothing on, Sometimes that will inhibit the stun. Um, Contact with the flesh is best, obviously a full charge, and a product that is of sufficient quality. Um, I've never carried one of those. I've simply seen them used and trained in them, Um, but I never carried one on duty or off duty just because of my background. I don't want to rely on something else. but for someone that wanted a product. The problem with pepper spray and those types of things, not that they're ineffective, but they tend to affect the user as much as the person that's being sprayed because they atomize into the atmosphere. And if the wind is blowing towards you or you inhale because you're excited and you're breathing heavily, or you've been in an altercation, then you tend to be as affected as the person that you spray. Um, So that can be a problem. Uh, If it was a single implement that you could carry that's non-firearm, and I'm assuming we'll leave edged weapon out of that since knives are a whole different category, both legally and uh, morally for some people, um, that would be the cubiton. Cubiton is a small plastic rod that's very heavy duty. You can buy them that are metal. You can buy them with points on them. You can buy them with points on them that go between your fingers like the car keys you were talking about. Um, and those are, those are very effective, but you need to train in them, know how to use them and you have to have them with you. The key to any piece of equipment that you're going to use for self-defense is it has to be on your person and with you, having it in a purse, having it in a console in your car, in the map pocket of your car, um, doesn't do you any good if you need to use it and you're not in that exact environment.
0: Have you seen a different reaction from men versus women to attacks?
1: Um, Yeah, the the standard difference is more societal and and what we're trained to do. Um, Women typically are giving away body weight and strength, sometimes even endurance, when it comes to a physical encounter, depending on their background. And when someone uh, initiates a violent attack on them, women tend to flee. Um, and again, I think that's based more on, on just training and logistics than anything else. Um, things that they were taught from the time they were a little girl, um, men tend to encounter, um, and will resist and fight back, uh, especially if there's someone else around that they feel that they are quote unquote protecting. Um, also attacks on men tend to be more. Assaultive and uh, robbery for monetary gain oriented and attacks on women statistically tend to run towards more of an acting out of violence uh, on a female person, not so much as winning a fight. But it's to because of the psychological makeup of the attacker, they will want to attack a female for whatever their background and mental reasons are. And they tend to be more revenge or sexual assault oriented.
0: Uh, What would you say about the legal aspect of self-defense?
1: To educate yourself. Every state has their own uh, criteria. Um, It's very much my... My last 16 years on the job, I uh, the last 12 of it anyway, I was in the special victims unit as a detective, and every state has different ages of consent and uh, different classifications of sexual conduct and how they classify it as a crime. Um, in Tennessee, uh, one case I worked, one case that was here was a felony. When I called Tennessee, it was a misdemeanor, and they wouldn't work it. Um, For reference, we're in Washington state. Right. Um, So in Washington State, they have specific self-defense laws, and you're allowed to do certain things. Um, However, those change continually, and Washington's uh, legislative body, uh, specifically the governor, just had his insurance commissioner disallow an insurance company that does nationwide insuring of people that carry concealed firearms uh, just allowed them to do business in the state. Um, that just happened this year. Uh, so there are, that. yeah, there are, uh, our, our, retired police guild president is trying to get something done about that as is a gentleman that I just made a holster for, um, who is in charge of a church security team. They just lost their insurance coverage oh, wow. in case they're involved in a, uh, concealed carry shooting, uh, because the governor doesn't support concealed carry and he uh, directed the insurance commissioner to no longer do business with that specific insurance company. So, uh, yeah, you need to educate yourself. That's the biggest thing I can say. And there are classes offered at a lot of shooting ranges and in a lot of different venues that will help you become better informed on that rather than just trying to read and decipher the specific laws in your state. Some of those are are written centuries ago, and they're hard to understand.
0: I would add that even if you're not interested in owning a firearm, it might be worth looking into classes at your local shooting range because they'll train you on how to take away a weapon from someone else sometimes in a self-defense class, and that could be useful for you anyway.
1: Well, and, and to add on to that, if you're just in a situation where, say, you're a female and you have a boyfriend or a husband or a male companion that you're with or another female that you're with who has a concealed carry even though you don't shoot and they're in a violent encounter and the weapon falls on the ground and you pick it up, if you're completely unfamiliar with it, you're A, useless to them as uh, someone who can come to their aid with that weapon and B, you're at risk yourself because you don't know how to properly handle it or secure it or use it if you had to. So having that background and that knowledge, even if you don't plan to concealed carry, might be beneficial just if you end up in a situation where one is present and you didn't even bring it.
0: Right, more More education is always better, I think. Um. Should someone learn self-defense or situational awareness first? And maybe you can give us like definitions of uh, what is self-defense versus situational awareness.
1: Well, situational awareness is simply being aware of your environment and escape routes and possible threats that would be present in that environment rather than just being like your average person and staring at your cell phone and thinking about your day and your plans and what you're going to do and where's the best parking spot. Instead, it's thinking about what's the lighting like here? Am I in a high crime area? Am I at risk of vehicular traffic because of the arterial traffic flow that's near me? Is it rush hour? Uh, Is it a Friday night and people are out drinking in this area? Um, Is this a party area? Is this... Uh, a college town? Uh, am I in a campus area where frat and uh, sororities are going to be having parties and I am uh, have a good chance of running into an intoxicated college student who may or may not be hostile, may be just be celebrating? Um, what is my situation and am I aware of it? Um, is this an arterial where emergency vehicles are going to go? And should I be looking in my rearview mirror for emergency vehicles or listening to sirens instead of just cranking my radio up? Different things like that. That's situational awareness. Uh, Self-defense is obviously uh, learning a skill set, be it just practical or be it traditional like Kung Fu or other martial arts, uh, to increase your chances of survival and success in a violent encounter of a physical nature. and some of those are more applicable than others. Um, Some martial arts are more sport oriented like judo and taekwondo, although they have their applications in a violent encounter. Some are very practical and are simply designed during modern times to be uh, the style of choice for someone who's going to be in a violent encounter where soldiers are training in Israel in uh, Krav Maga or where you're training in Sambo, or uh, Spetsnaz training in Russia, uh, where they have styles of martial arts that are specifically designed for a person to just utilize in a violent encounter, and they're designed to break bones, get control, get the person on the ground, render the person unconscious or incapable of causing you harm. They do not take the welfare of the assailant uh, into account for the most part, Um, They're simply designed for your protection Um, each style has its own merits and its own strengths and weaknesses Um, My recommendation for most people is to take something that fits their environment their body style and their age and their philosophical makeup because if you study something say you become an expert at firearm use but it's not in your psychological makeup or religious background to ever use firearms against someone other than familiarity with the weapons, you haven't probably made the best use of your time. So if you're incapable of punching someone or kicking them in the head, Taekwondo probably isn't for you. But if you want to have a style that can control someone and get them on the ground and keep them from hurting themselves or anybody else anymore, than jujitsu or judo or something like that might be more applicable for you.
0: I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest. I have very few qualms about punching somebody in the head.
1: But there are a lot of people that can't. I don't Uh, doubt it. I just, I honestly hadn't thought of that. (laughs) Right. We've had officers that have gone all the way through the academy. One young man in mind years and years ago that I trained, uh, he came out number one in the academy and he lasted a day and a half in the train car. He simply could not bring himself, and he was former military, and he could not bring himself to make people sad. And the first man he arrested had assaulted his wife, and they placed him under arrest and drove him to jail, and the man cried all the way to jail, and the young officer quit the next day. Wow. Um, And he said that wasn't why he hired on, even though he knew that he was helping the wife and the children, by taking the violent offender out of the house, it still went against what he was capable of. So everybody's right. got their limits. Although some of the people we run into and study these things for don't seem to have those limits.
0: Yeah, that seems to also vary greatly. Um, so I, with uh, self-defense and situ- situational awareness, uh, which would you recommend focusing on first?
1: Um, normally in the styles of martial arts that I took, all of our instructors in the early belts talked about situational awareness. And I talk about that when I teach my classes, um, and, and when you raised your children and when I raised my children, yourself included, um, because if you have a skill set and you have no situational awareness, the situation will frequently be up on you and you'll be having to react rather than respond. If you have situational awareness, you can incorporate a response, and that way you can decide to use your skill set or just to extract yourself from the situation before it gets to you and call 911 or get in your vehicle and leave, and then call 911 or whatever is appropriate for you in that situation. Um, so the two go hand in hand if you're going to put one toe in the water at a time in this type of education, -education, Mm -hmm. self-education, then do the situational awareness, and that'll help you determine what you want to be capable of and physically what you are capable of without extraordinary measures being taken, like a change of diet, change of exercise, routine, etc., and that way you can determine what style of self-defense you want to spend your money and your time on.
0: When an attacker first strikes or grabs a person, the defender will often freeze up. How do you suggest avoiding that?
1: Well, that, and that goes back to your other question just before this, situational awareness. If you're aware that you have an attack coming because you have stayed aware of your environment and you've seen this person acting out, you just can't avoid them because of circumstances and you know that it's coming, Mm -hmm. then you're relaxed and you're balanced and you're able to respond in a tactical manner physically. Mm -hmm. If you are unaware and your feet are close together or you're walking as you go and you're only on one foot and you get attacked, tackled, or run into by someone uh, that you didn't know was coming, then that, again, your training and your background will help greatly because one of the first things you learn to do in, say, jujitsu or judo um, and some of the other ground styles are you learn how to fall. Um, And if you have that capability, then you don't tense up, you stay relaxed, you just know that something's happened, you're taking energy and you instinctively react to your training, and you tuck your chin, protect your head, and you try to go to your back so that you can fight accordingly. Um, The only way to really avoid that tensing up is to train and to participate in training where you have the actual physical encounters in your class. To just punch a, a punching bag and to train with stationary objects or with training partners that are just going to fall to the ground when you grab them doesn't really help you with that situation because an attacker's physical mm-hmm. energy is frequently surprising when it happens for the first time in real life.
0: Makes a lot of sense. I... Uh... You used to talk about schemas a lot, too, and that was, like, a a thing that came up frequently when you would talk about situational awareness and things like that. And as somebody with an anxiety disorder, for me to not freeze up if something stressful is going on, if I've thought about it over and over ahead of time, like, I've just found that to be beneficial. So running through the different scenarios and things that might happen which i kind of do anyway without being able to help that it helps me specifically avoid that response just in case that's there's anybody else in a similar situation i would maybe add that
1: schemas if people aren't familiar with them are our mental practice of a situation that you're going to be in um it's, it can be medical, it can be tactical, it can be uh, firearm-oriented. Uh, we we practice it all the time, like when we train our children that when company comes, you don't open the door and say, what? <laughs> you open the door and say, hi, man, well, help you? Well, not usually. <laughs> right, unless you're Billy. Um, so uh, a schema in a self-defense situation is if I'm in this situation and a person does X, What should my responses be? I can go A, I can go B, I can go C. And you can practice that mentally. Should I avoid a punch? Should I block a punch? Should I step back away from a punch? Should I go under the punch and go into that person and grab them and take them down? What are my options? And when you run through the schemas, that definitely helps you in your mental awareness. And those are kind of the second or third stage of situational awareness. The first one's being aware. The next one is being able to formulate a response and practice that response and then incorporate it in reality when it does happen. It's the same thing as medical training. When you come up on a car wreck and someone is in the front seat unconscious, do you know ABC? Do you check the airway? Do you check for breathing? Do you check for circulation? Is a person conscious? Is Are they at risk of head injury? Should you stabilize their head? If you've never practiced that or haven't done it for a very long time, it's hard to decide what to do there, and people tend to freeze. So, Thank you for...
0: For breaking that down, because I really wasn't quite sure how to.
1: Well, tactically, it's the same thing. It's just a different genre of study.
0: What would you suggest for self-defense to someone on the heavier side?
1: Um, You want to use your your assets. So if one of your assets is that you're bigger than the average bear, uh, which is myself included, Uh, the styles that worked well for me were to get in and get close and get a hold of someone and use my size and weight to an advantage where I can get on top of them and make them work hard and burn energy and use up their endurance to try to get up. And in the meantime, I can work towards a position of advantage and a position of control by getting a hold of wrists and elbows or by putting a carotid submission hold on somebody and... Uh, rendering them unconscious by putting my arm around their neck properly, not improperly like you see in the movies. <laughs> that's also a yeah. If you're a, if you're a tall skinny person, then then you want to study something that's the inverse of that. Maybe you want to keep your distance. Maybe you want to, or if you're going to be in close, you want to use your length to your advantage, where jujitsu comes in handy with. Uh, that type of awareness because a long skinny jujitsu practitioner will have a different style of attack frequently than a short stocky or heavy one um, because their limbs are longer and they can use that leverage to their advantage. Um, So that, that gives a person different options.
0: What are the most common self-defense tactics and how effective are they really? And some of the, uh, Examples that they had here were keys between the fingers, stomping on toes, and kicking someone in the crotch.
1: Um, uh, well, we'll go in order. Keys Which be, I think uh, goes
0: back to the movies a little bit. I don't know that many people who their first move is kicking someone in the crotch.
1: Um, well, it, it's instinctive. Um, the only problem with kicking someone in the groin is that the defense of that area is also instinctive. Mm -hmm. Um, You're taught from a very young age as a boy by just the pain that's involved uh, to block that area and to do so instinctively. Um, So unless you can get a good sneak attack and a direct impact, um, uh, a groin strike uh, has various levels of effectiveness. It's one of the first things I was taught in the dark ages of law enforcement back in the early 80s (laughs) before we had formal defensive tactics training. And that's one of the things that that my sergeant taught me when I was a recruit was uh, to hit someone in the groin with a flashlight or your fist because, in his words, they never failed to go down and they never failed to recover. Um, (laughs) So... You just have to be aware that the human body naturally wants to turn or drop the knees in or or bring the thighs together to block that kind of technique. It can be a good feint to get the person to bring their hands down to that area and then strike them somewhere else because now their hands are near their groin. Um, And they're not in an athletic stance, they've brought their knees together, their hands are towards their groin, and it leaves their sternum, their solar plexus, their throat, their face, uh, the sides of their head um, open for attack. So um, it can be a good feint. Um, Going to the keys and the hands, uh, it depends on the type of keys you're carrying. Um, frequently now, our more modern cars with higher technology just have the key fob, so we don't have as many keys. If you have house keys, um, rather than, say, a long Toyota key or a Volkswagen key, which tend to be very long with a large head, um, those fit in the palm pretty well and go about between the fingers, but you have to know how to punch and you have to know where to punch with those in your hand in order for those to be effective if you hit someone in the chest with a set of keys it's not going to do much to them if you Mm -hmm. hit them in the throat it can be very damaging it could even kill them and if that's not justified or if that's not your intent then you want to be aware of that Um, if you're just trying to survive the situation or you want to have something in your hands and, and that's something that you're, you're aware of and want to work towards, I would suggest carrying something in your hand that is legal in your area and that you can use readily and you've trained in like a coubaton or something like that rather than keys. Because if you use the keys wrong, they can split the webs of your fingers and they can be driven back into the palms of your hand and render your right hand or your strong hand useless in that situation if you hurt your hand with the first punch and just really irritate the person.
0: There is... uh, This is something that they talked about in a lot of the self-defense classes that I've taken around here. There are ways to hold the keys where it does more damage and they don't slip back into your hand. And I'll put pictures of that on my blog. And uh, it, it still wouldn't be... The thing I would focus on the most, but there are ways that probably will damage the attacker more and you less. Um, and it's not the way you're going to think is going to be the most effective, probably. It's not between the fingers. It's down in your palm, and then you strike down with them.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Uh, that was one of the things that Sean Kendall uh, spent a lot of time on.
1: Okay. So, yeah, you could use a more like a long fingernail, like a raking and stabbing. Yeah instrument as a distraction or to get someone to let go of you if they've grabbed you and you can attack the back of the hand with it that was most of the uh the
0: things that they showed us was to use it to kind of rake you know right. where they would be vulnerable
1: right and, and that makes sense because don't do
0: the wolverine thing though. <laughs> right,
1: right to try to punch with them which is what most people think yeah. of when you hold them in your fingers um can damage you as much as them
0: Uh, Stumping on toes, I mean... Oh,
1: let's go down the sequence there. Um, We covered the groin strike. Right. Uh, We kind of went backwards here. One one of the things that you want to think of on a groin strike, we'll we'll cover that thoroughly first, is on a groin strike, you want to make sure that the attack of that area is a surprise so the person can't defend it, and you want to hit that person as hard as you can Or you want to get a hold of that area and squeeze if the clothing uh, that they have on allows you to do that. Um, You want to strike with a a hammer fist part of your fist or the knuckles of your fist if it's an uppercut. Um, If they're behind you and you're swinging backwards, making a fist and striking with the soft back part of the fist works well and it gives you a lot of force. Um, A kick of any kind, whether it's with the instep or the toes or the shin or the knees um, will work in that area. Um, be aware that not all of that area is incredibly sensitive. So if you miss the testicles and hit the pelvic bone, it might hurt, but it won't necessarily drop them. Right. Um, so if you kick too far back, that might not have a lot of effect. Uh, if you kick too far forward and hit the front of the thigh or hit the stomach or the belt area that might not have that much of an effect. Um, It's not a huge target, and you need to hit it specifically. If you can smash the testicles against the pelvic area, it will cross their eyes, and it will hurt, and they will frequently either throw up or drop to their knees. So um, the other thing you can do is if you get a hold of it, and you can squeeze that area, (laughs) squeeze as hard as you can, and then jerk straight down. That is devastating. Which
0: was what everyone yelled at you when you taught that at summer camp. (laughs) Right? Grab, squeeze, and pull down.
1: <laughs> right? You want to squeeze so hard that they run between your fingers like broken <laughs> eggs. That's the, that's the line that we used to teach. So,
0: um, One other quick note. If you are hitting someone with your fist, please do it with the first two knuckles and not the last two because I used to volunteer in an ER and everybody would break the bones in their hand when they hit with their knuckles of their little finger and ring finger that's bad, that will incapacitate you.
1: That's a great thing to point out because those bones are very tiny in the hand and they're not very supported by the wrist. The other ones are in line with the big bone and the lower forearm uh, that are on the index finger and the middle finger. And that's exactly what you want to hit with. That's a good thing to point out. And again, that's training because people tend, if they're untrained or excited, to loop their punch Uh, in an arc from the outside and that brings Mm -hmm. the little finger and the ring finger in contact. Um, One thing I'll cover really quickly is if you're going to punch at all, make sure that your weapon of attack that you're using is appropriate for the target that you're hitting. You don't want to hit a hard target with a hard weapon. Your fist is a hard weapon. Mm -hmm. If you hit someone in the head or the face with that fist, you're going to frequently break your hand and or cause a lot of blood flow from the person that you're hitting without doing a lot of debilitating type of damage and putting them out of commission and then you're going to have their blood on you which depending on their lifestyle and what they do right that might uh, not be great might not be the best thing so you want to hit with the palm of your hand or your forearm on hard targets and you want to hit the solar plexus, the groin, the throat with a hard a hard weapon so hard weapon goes to a soft target, and a soft weapon goes to a hard target. And then on the on stomping on the toes, uh, I don't recommend stomping on the toes. If you're going to stomp, stomp on the instep. Right. Break the bones in the instep of the foot uh, or cause more pain. Um, that's more debilitating, and it's definitely more painful than just getting your toes stepped on. And um, it's something that you can do when someone's behind you. If someone comes up and grabs you, you don't have to be able to see their feet to stomp on them. Um, if you can reach back with your foot during the struggle and f- hit the inside of their leg, you know their foot's at the bottom of that. You can follow the inside or front of the leg down, and the foot's there, and you can stomp on that. And that is one of the few targets that I would hit repeatedly Um if you do severe damage to that, you, you may affect an escape and then be able to outrun the person because their foot is damaged, especially if you have appropriate footwear on.
0: And if you don't have appropriate footwear, then take off your heels and beat the man with the heels.
1: But- That's very effective. I've seen that, and I know two women who have done that um, and and had very effective results. Let's see. The- is uh,
0: compassion fatigue common in your industry, and how do you deal with that?
1: Compassion fatigue. So they're talking about in regards to law enforcement, I'm assuming?
0: I That was the way I was interpreting the
1: question. Um, I guess that would be along the line of, of uh, sympathetic burnout or uh, it is basically anything like that where you thing. just get impersonal and... Uh, what you have to learn in any emergency profession, whether it's firefighting or working in an ER or uh, urgent care facility or whether you're a law enforcement or any, any type of support emergency service, is you have to learn to have empathy and not sympathy. You try not to make it personal. You give that person the care and the compassion that that situation and their mental makeup Uh, necessitates and warrants. And then you try to keep your own self and your own emotions and psyche compartmentalized in a professional sense. And once you've handled that situation, you record it as you need to, as your job requires, once they've been given the care that they need, and you move on. And if it's a traumatic personal event, like you're helping someone, Uh, with the death of a child or the death of a loved one Um, and then you may need to talk to someone else after that and in most professions those services are available but they're very infrequently used because everybody in those professions wants to think that they're capable of dealing with it and can just move on. Um, I had to interview two little boys in my career on the spur of the moment, as, as a detective, I was called into the station and asked to do an immediate interview. And their little brother had just been murdered by the mother's boyfriend. And they did not know that. They did not know he was dead. And they talked about him during my interviews with them like he was alive. And I knew he was dead. Oh. And I didn't have any time to prepare for that. And that stayed with me for a month where that never left my mind. Uh, and I eventually had to talk to somebody about it, uh, and work through that. Uh, and when I retired from my career, I realized that I had brought a lot more baggage with me than I realized and had to work through that. So it's just something that you have to deal with. If you have that burnout, you should leave the career, um, or get some help so that you can have that back because you can't walk around an emotional zombie and hope to be functional in your own personal, uh, domestic life, whatever that is, um, you're just going to damage those around you. So something to be aware of.
0: Well, that's it for all the questions that I got from people. Uh, With regard to uh, common tactics, uh, I wanted to throw out there really quick that uh, usually... My go-to, and I think this is something that I learned from you and something that I learned from classes is to go for the face because there's so much there that's vulnerable. You can put an eye out, you can break a nose, you can hit them in the throat.
1: I Thoughts? That's exactly correct. Okay. Um, my, my joking phrase was always learn to be a medical professional when it comes to self-defense. Be a ear, eye, nose, and throat specialist. <laughs> um, because if you slap someone across the ear and you pop an eardrum, that's a lot of pain and it's disoriented and it disrupts our balance. And any person of any size and strength can accomplish that. Um, if you get a thumbnail in an eye and push out away from the nose, um, that's, <laughs> that's debilitating and it's distracting and they will think about their own self-preservation more than their purpose for the attack. And it will give you time and distance and time and distance or will keep you alive in that situation. So, yeah, if you get your thumb in their mouth and you rip a cheek or if you hit them in the throat, it only takes seven pounds of pressure to crush the bone in the throat. that holds it open so you can breathe.
0: Right, the Um, hyoid.
1: Right. So you... uh, These
0: are all true crime junkies. They'll know what that is. (laughs) Right.
1: So that's, I mean, that's, that's stuff that's real. If you have to use an appendage, the first blow that I would teach to do is to balance yourself and pivot your hips and throw a forearm as hard as you could right up into the face and the throat. Primarily the throat first, um, it's not so much crush oriented as it is. It will disrupt their balance and it will disrupt their breathing if it's landed correctly. Um, If you miss and hit the face, oh well. So that doesn't do them any good either.
0: Right, still not gonna be fun for them.
1: And it won't hurt you.
0: Anything you wanna
1: add to that that uh, you think people should know? I would recommend that you have some background in how to defend yourself and how to use things in your environment to survive it. Because just because you don't think bad thoughts about people doesn't mean someone else isn't thinking bad thoughts about you.
0: Right. And I feel like with this crowd, like there may be a little more aware of that than other people because a, a half of the links in that group are criminals doing bad things. Right. And us talking about why do people do bad things, and that gets very philosophical.
1: But Right, and I've arrested people that have done them anywhere from they thought they were driven to it, to someone did deliberately drive them to it, to they were motivated by greed, to they just really enjoyed it. It's just what they like to do. I grew up in the Ted Bundy area. He was in the region that I grew up in. He killed one of my acquaintances' sisters. And none of those people that he preyed upon thought about them being a victim or had bad thoughts about people. But they also weren't prepared to defend themselves from a suspicious situation until it got too late. So that's just something you have to be aware of. People that are serial predators enjoy that. That's their game, that's their Xbox, is inflicting pain on other human beings. And you have to be prepared as just a human on this planet interacting with other humans to defend yourself from them. Um, so that's it.
0: Cool. Uh, you wanna talk about what you're doing now and you're writing a little bit or? Just to kind of end on a little bit of a happier note <laughs> after we've talked about shit bags for like almost an hour.
1: Um, sure. Um, I've got uh, two books that are in the works. I've got um, one that's more career based uh, where it's a, a novel um, about an officer who loses his spouse and the criminal justice system does not take care of the situation and, Um, That person goes out and then hurts another family. Um, And so the, the police officer involved decides that he's going to try to lower the number of criminals on the planet so he can reduce the number of victims and actually be effective. So he goes on a bit of a selective murdering spree, killing career criminals. Um, that he tracks, compiles information on, and then kills in a way so that it doesn't endanger anybody or cause any undue taxpayer expense, because, in his opinion, who would really care if he took out a career criminal? They're going to investigate it, but they're not going to investigate it a lot. Um, it's actually been done by a number of civilians, um, one of whom killed 10 of those individuals and then turned himself in, uh, in this state. Um But uh, so it's a it's a fictional work, Um, and I have that one about half done. And then I'm uh, about a third of the way through a Western uh, historical fiction uh, back in 1867 uh, of a young man coming up to the from Nebraska to the Bozeman, Montana, Gold Rush area and uh, trying to help family friends that have fallen on hard times. And he's 18 when he makes the trip. And it's just him growing up and the things that he encounters historically in that era and in that area. So kind of a coming-of-age historical fiction.
0: Well, thank you for doing this and for answering questions and going back into stuff that's really not that happy. and.
1: (laughs) You're welcome, and if anybody has any further questions because of any of this discussion, I'll be happy to answer them at a later time.: Cool.
0: Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Music by Santino Huber, art by Charisse Marshall.